Well, we're in the book of Ephesians still, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And as a reminder of the, the structure of this book, it's a, a real straightforward and simple structure. After spending the first three chapters teaching theology, now in the second three chapters, Paul begins the, the practical implications of that theology. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are about what God has done to reconcile us to himself through Jesus. And then the last three chapters are about what we should do in light of that, how we should respond to God's grace. So those first three chapters are doctrine, and then the second three chapters are really answering the question, well, so what? And this is the question we should always ask when we read God's word and we come to understand something about God. We understand what he's teaching us. We understand the, the theology or the doctrine. And then we ask ourselves, well, so what? What are the implications of that? What does that mean for my, my daily life? Because we know this, our, our, our beliefs shape our behavior. What we've come to know about ourselves and God and the world, that determines the way that we think in the world. It determines the way that we act in the world. So Paul has, you could think of it this way, he's poured a foundation in chapters 1 through 3. He's poured a foundation of teaching, of theology, and of doctrine. And now, in chapters 4 through 6, he's saying, this is the kind of life you should build on that foundation. This is how you should speak, he's telling us. This is how you should treat other people. He's telling us this is how you should deal with conflict. This is how you should handle sin and temptation. This is how you should work at your job. He's going to get very practical. This is the kind of father you should be. This is the kind of child you should be. So where we are today in our study is we're right in the middle of all that orthopraxy, that all that right living. We're right in the middle of, of all of that right living that's going to lead to, to your joy and God's glory. And now today, we come to the Apostle Paul's description of a good marriage. That's what's in our text today is the Apostle Paul's description of a good marriage. There's a lot of ideas out there about what makes a good marriage a, a good marriage. And there have been many public marriages over the years that have drawn people's attention and admiration and maybe marriages that we've pointed to as good. For example, Winston Churchill and his wife Clementine, they were married for 56 years. And it was said of them as a couple that they were they were two people who were perfect for each other, but they wouldn't be perfect for anyone else. 
In fact, Winston Churchill, as brilliant as he was, was known as a fairly difficult man to be around. And so a woman once turned to Mr. Churchill at a dinner party, and she said, Sir, if you were my husband, I would give you poison to drink. And he quickly responded, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) Well, here's what Paul says in the text before us. According to God, here's what a good marriage is. So married, not married, we all want to understand what God's word has to say about what a a good marriage actually is. And here's just a one-sentence summary of what we're going to get into and see Paul say. A good marriage, okay, a good marriage is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to his church. We'll understand through the word today what that means, but it's true. A good marriage is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to the church. A a good marriage looks to the relationship between Christ and his church as a model and looks to mimic it and then mirror it to anyone who's watching. And thankfully, Paul has spent a lot of time already, again, We have the foundation, so we're ready for this. He has spent a lot of time describing Christ's relationship to the church. We could go back and understand again all that he said in chapters 1 through 3. And so now, on that foundation, he's looking out to husbands and wives and saying, imitate that relationship between Christ and his church. Reflect that relationship between Christ and his church. And in the verses before us, Paul tells us exactly how how to do that. So let's get started, but first let's let's pray together. Again, Father in heaven, we ask that through your word and by your spirit, you would teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. Again, a good marriage is patterned after Christ's relationship to the church. And look at our text. Here's an outline of how Paul does this. Verses 22 through 24 will be about a good wife. So we have a good wife in verses 22 through 24. In verses 25 through 30, then, we have a good husband. In verses 31 through 32, Paul gives us the mystery of marriage. And then verse 33 is a closing summary. So a good wife, a good husband, the mystery of marriage and a closing summary. And I'd like to begin out of order, and hopefully it'll be clear why. 
But let's start out of order and jump down to verses 31 through 32, which unveil what Paul alludes to in verses 22 through 30. So I think it's it's going to be helpful if first we jump down to verses 31 and 32, because you see in verse 32, Paul says, I am saying, in other words, he had been saying in the verses before, which we'll get to indirectly, what he now spells out directly in verse 32. He had been alluding to the mystery of marriage in those verses, but here he's going to spell it out. So let's spell it out with Paul first, this mystery of marriage, and then we'll go back and see what he says about a good wife and a good husband. So look with me at verse 31. And after giving instructions to wives and then husbands, Paul abruptly quotes Genesis 2, 24 here, which is the original institution of marriage. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a description of marriage at the very beginning of Genesis. First, a man leaves his father and mother. He, to use a modern term, he launches. Second, he holds fast to his wife, which means he marries her. He enters into a covenant with her. And then third, they become one flesh. The two become one. God merges two lives into one. And you've seen in our day, this has turned completely upside down. And a man and a woman will become one flesh, and then maybe they'll get married, and then maybe they'll move out of their parents' home. It's completely upside down. But Genesis 2.24 gives the order clear. And then Paul says this in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So real quick, a mystery, and I think we've talked about this before, a mystery is, is in Scripture is different than a mystery the way we mean it today. So when we use the word mystery, I think we usually mean there is something unknown and it hasn't yet been discovered. And we call that a mystery. That's not what the Bible means in the New Testament. It uses the word mystery. When it uses the word mystery, it's talking about something that for a very long time was hidden and was not understood, but now it has been revealed. That is a mystery. So, for example, if we were to use the word in a biblical sense, we could say that photosynthesis is a mystery. We didn't understand how that was working for a long time, but now we do. We could also say the way the Bible says the gospel is a mystery. The understanding of the gospel and the working out of the gospel 
was unknown for so long how exactly God was going to reconcile his people to himself. But now the gospel has been made known to us. It's been unlocked what was hidden for so long. So the gospel is a mystery. And Paul here is saying that marriage is a mystery. The Greek word is maga, he says, which means profound. It means big. It means huge. It means deep. It means that this mystery of marriage is not like a truth that is floating on the surface of the ocean. It's in the depths at the bottom of the sea. It's that kind of a mystery. It's the kind of mystery that dramatically changes the way you think about something once you understand it. And he's saying marriage is like that. There's a deep truth to what's going on in a marriage and what a marriage is. And it's profoundly important, Paul is saying. So we, we want to know, Paul, what, what is it? He says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it, and he's been talking about marriage, and I am saying that marriage refers to Christ and the church. That's the profound truth that Paul is revealing, and we should pause and, and take that in. When you think about how the world thinks about marriage and all that we've heard said about marriage, Paul says, marriage refers to Christ and the church. So whatever that means, means a lot, and he's going to spell out a lot of what it means. It's, it's very significant. So as Christians, when we think of marriage, we think marriage refers to Christ and the church, a truly Christian marriage, as described in the verses we're going to go to now in verses 22 through 30. It is patterned after, is what it means to refer to, it is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to the church. Well, if you're like me, you want to know, well, how does it do that? How, what does that actually look like? So let's go back now. And let's read the two parts above where Paul has just explained how a good wife and a good husband pattern their relationship after Christ and the church. And let's begin with a good wife where Paul begins in verses 22 through 24. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a couple things to see right away here. First of all, women are not called to submit to men. You see that. That's what's not being said here. That women in general are to submit to men. That would be unbiblical. No, wives, they are called to submit to their own husbands. That means not another husband. 
They're called to submit to their own husbands. That happens only in this one relationship. And then the second thing to note is that a wife submits to her husband. Do you see that phrase at the end of the verse? As to the Lord. As to the Lord. Which means a wife's submission to her husband is part of her devotion to Christ. It's connected to her relationship with Jesus Christ. The way Colossians 3.18 puts it is, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the basic instruction. We'll come back to it. And then Paul gives his reason in verses 23 and 24. Why should a wife submit to her husband? Why should a Christian wife submit to her husband? For, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The word head signifies authority. The word head signifies authority. So as Christ is in authority over the church, so in a marriage, the husband is in authority over the wife. And we'll see shortly why a husband has been given that authority. And we'll see that it is to love and to serve. But the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here's what Paul is saying. Wives, he's saying, your submission to your husband is patterned after the church's submission to Christ. It's patterned after that relationship. And that is a high and difficult calling. It's a high and difficult calling for believers to submit to Christ. We all know that. And it's a high and difficult calling for a wife to submit to her husband. But let's make sure we're not making it more difficult than it is by going a little farther in understanding what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not saying, when he says a wife should submit to her husband, this is very important. I'm sure we all know this. Paul is not saying that a wife is unequal to her husband. He's not saying that a wife is inferior to her husband. According to Genesis 1.27 and Galatians 3.28, Men and women, husbands and wives, we are equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. So this submission is voluntary. This submission is not a submission because a wife is inferior to her husband or unequal to her husband. No, this is a a voluntary submission. One commentator writes that the verb submit can be used of Christ's submission to the authority of God the Father. Same word is used. That shows that it cannot denote a functional, or that it can denote, excuse me, a functional subordination without implying inferiority or less honor and glory. 
So what does it mean for wives to submit to their own husbands? Because this is not a controversial topic or anything. What does that look like? Right? This, this, this is not the verse that a husband is to quote, a Christian husband is to quote to his wife whenever he wants his wife to do whatever he thinks that she should do. But unfortunately, this is one of the verses that all husbands have memorized. But that is that really misses the mark. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to not anger too many people today. And let's just understand biblically what is this we're talking about. A wife's submission to her husband, this is the, the best way that I think we could put it, is a disposition or attitude that affirms the leadership of her husband. It's not just an attitude, of course. It works out in action. It works out in behavior. But it begins in the heart. True submission of a wife to her husband is not begrudging. It begins in the heart. It is a disposition toward her husband. It is an attitude toward her husband that affirms leadership. So for some examples, a good wife, according to this text, this is the aim, this is the goal, a good wife wants her husband to lead. A good wife resists sinful impulses, Genesis 3.16 talks about this, to work against her husband. That temptation has been there ever since the curse, and it's very real. But a good wife resists and, and tries to fight that temptation to rule over her husband. A good wife wants her husband to take initiative. See, these are dispositions. These are attitudes. A good wife wants her husband to take responsibility. She wants these things, desires these things. A good wife will see respects her husband. A good wife prays for her husband to lead. So you see, her whole disposition affirms and encourages leadership of her husband. Now, remember, we're saying that all of this, what a wife does, a husband does, the marriage, it all is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. But, but here's the thing for all married ladies in this room. Your husband is no Christ. And all the husbands, including myself, would nod our heads. Now, this is referring to and patterned after and portraying, but there's some problems here. Because we as husbands, we are, we are not Christ. We are not inherently worthy of the submission of our wives. It's not because of who we are and how amazing we are or respectable we are, what great leaders we are. No, we're, we're, I pray, being conformed into the image of Christ, but we are not Christ. In fact, for, 
I would know this without not know, knowing any details, not having to know any details, I would know that for all of you wives, there are times when your husbands are downright not respectable. Because I've done things in my life as a husband that are not respectable. And yet here is this calling for a Christian wife to have a disposition toward her husband. Even, it doesn't say, it doesn't say anywhere, as long as he's respectable. It's a high and it's a difficult calling. Well, how is a wife to do that? This really gets into the the glory of God now. This kind of submission, wives, understand this kind of submission to a sinful husband. And every wife has that in common with every other wife. The wife is a sinner and she's married to a sinful husband. This kind of submission to a sinful husband Listen, it is only possible if you have a great God and faith in him. And we get that mixed up. It's only possible if I have a great husband. No, that's not true. Then only certain wives could even fulfill this calling from the Lord. How is it possible? It's possible if you have a great God and faith in him. A wife's submission to her imperfect husband, it is overflow from her faith and trust in God. That's why Peter calls this submission of a wife to her husband in 1 Peter 3. He calls it adornment. Adornment. And there he pointed out the glory in 1 Peter 3. In other words, what, what, is, what is beautiful? Why is that adornment? Why is that a beautiful thing? when a Christian wife submits to her imperfect husband? Well, the reason is because that demonstrates that she must have her faith in something, someone other than her husband, ultimately, in God. So what kind of a God must God be to enable a woman to submit to a sinful husband? You see, so now God is glorified. And do you remember the example that Peter gave? A beautiful submission. It was a submission of Sarah to Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham was not the model husband. I mean, he did some things. He did some terrible. You go back and read. We won't get into it. But he did some terrible things. He was, in many regards... He was a mess in his marriage, and Sarah's willing submission to him showcased to the world an all-satisfying God. How could she submit to this imperfect man unless she had this relationship with God? Paul makes clear in verses 22 through 24 that wives are to pattern their relationship to their husband after the church's relationship to Christ. And then ideally, husbands are doing the same thing. So wives, you can, you can relax now. Now he moves on to husbands. 
ideally a husband is doing the same thing. He is patterning his own behavior after Christ toward the church. So let's look at the good husband in verses 25 through 30. And just note, there are twice as many verses for husbands as there are for wives. So just saying. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's heavy. A good husband understands that his headship means primarily authority to love and to serve. A good husband has one bride. And he is, as 1 Timothy 3, 2 says literally, he is a one-woman man. He's not committing adultery or spiritual adultery. His eyes aren't wandering and fixating. He's not lusting. He's not looking. He's not fantasizing. He's not flirting. Husbands, we are called here to give up ourselves for our wives, to give ourselves up for our wives. So out of great affection, the husband looks to sacrifice himself, is what this means. To sacrifice himself for his wife. In other words, he's willing to die a daily death. Willing to die a daily death. Ready to take a bullet. Ready to take the heat, ready to take the slander, ready to take her correction at times, as a good helper will do, a daily dying to yourself for the good of your family. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Colossians 3, 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why would God have to tell husbands this? Doesn't tell wives not to be harsh with their husbands. Doesn't tell wives to live with their husbands in an understanding way. Not to say that wives can't be harsh. Not that they can't be ununderst not understanding. But understanding a natural propensity perhaps. Peter and Paul address husbands and say, live with your life in an wife in an understanding way. Do not be harsh with them. And then what follows in the text is a description of Christ's sacrificial love. So love the way Christ did, and here's what that looks like. There are many things here that Christ does that husbands can't do, of course. But there is something for us to take from it. So verse 26 Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So let's try and apply this. Because there's, there's obviously a lot there that Christ does for the church that a husband can't ultimately do for his wife. But this is brought up as a model, the way Christ loves the church, for how husbands should love their wives. This is looking ahead to 
to Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, where the church is described as the bride of Christ. And there will one day, Revelation prophesies that there will one day be uh, a wedding feast. There will be this wedding feast when we, as the church, are united together with Christ in heaven. That day is coming, and Christ is working in us as his people, and washing us, and sanctifying us, making us more like him. And one day, we will be presented to him when his work is done in us, and we have been made like him, and are without sin, without spot, and without blemish. One day, we will really be without sin, And then we will be presented to him, the church, as this spotless bride. Well, husbands, we don't sanctify or cleanse our wives in the way that Christ does or Christ can. Of course not. But here, I believe, is the point. Husbands should give ourselves in love that our wives may reach their full potential in Christ. So this work that Christ does in giving himself up for and cleansing and sanctifying our wives so that one day we all may be presented to him perfect without spot or blemish Husbands, we're sacrificing ourselves and giving up ourselves for our wives in a way that is joined with Christ's mission in them. We want to see the same thing that Christ wants to see. We want to give ourselves up in a way that our wives may reach their full potential in Christ. Let me quote to you John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians, he he says all this better than I do. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in order to cleanse her, sanctify her, and ultimately present her to himself in full splendor and without any defect. In other words, his love and self-sacrifice were not an idle display, but purposive And his purpose was not to impose an alien identity upon the church, but to free her from the spots and wrinkles which mar her beauty and to display her in her true glory. Here we go. The Christian husband is to have a similar concern. His headship will never be used to suppress his wife. He longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. And then Paul goes on in verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
So husbands, we are to pattern our relationship with our wives after Christ's relationship to the church. We are to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. Out of great affection for them, we are to give ourselves up for them and for their good. And now in conclusion, Paul gives a closing summary in verse 33. He writes, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A summary of everything that he said before. That is the foundation right there of a good marriage. A good marriage is patterned after Christ's relationship to the church. A good marriage is one in which the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And a good marriage is one in which the husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. So I wonder today what, what you think a good marriage is. This isn't all a good marriage is, but this is what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 5. And I do wonder if we'll accept this truth we will we will if we haven't already we will if the holy spirit would soften our hearts i wonder if we'll commit ourselves to being this kind of husband to being this kind of wife well a lot of you here aren't married including three of my kids who are here today and we can be tempted as we probably all have experienced to read certain passages of Scripture and think, well, that doesn't, doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. And we could easily skim over this, those of you who are not married, and think, well, I'll read this again someday. You know, once I'm married, I'll read that. Well, listen, if you're not married, when you see a truly Christian marriage, the way it's being described here, take note. It's a rare thing. And it refers to Christ and the church. You're being shown something. When you see a good marriage, not a perfect marriage, when you see a good marriage, when you see a biblical marriage, look because you're being shown something about Christ and his relationship to the church. And it's one of the ways that God is teaching us what that relationship looks like. And many of you who are not married, statistically, one day you will be. What will you look for in a husband or a wife? Well, that's one of the reasons this passage is very important. Men, look for a woman who will support, encourage, and affirm you. And ladies, look for a man who will give himself up for you. So important. Those of you who are here today who are married but who are in a difficult marriage. Trying to cover all the bases here. All the situations that we might find ourselves in. No marriage, good marriage, tough marriage. That about covers it. There are many places we could go in scripture for those of you who are in marriages that are 
that are difficult or maybe difficult right now. But staying right here, staying right here, you can pattern your part in a marriage after this relationship between Christ and his church. One thing we've all learned is that we can't control other people, but we are called to have self-control. And I joked about it at the beginning, but one of the sad uses of this verse is, you know, typically the men know what it says about wives more than they know what it says about the men, and the wives might know what it says about the husbands more than what it says about the wives. We get it mixed up. Don't we do that? We read passages of Scripture and say, oh, that would be so good for so-and-so. I hope they hear that. And then meanwhile, we're, we're missing what God has for us to hear. And it's really, it's, it's a beautiful thing and an interesting thing, even how, of course, it's God's word, it's perfect, how it's worded. It speaks directly to wives and directly to husbands, but notice that it doesn't say wives, it doesn't say anything like wives, make sure your husbands love you this way. And it never says husbands, make sure your wives respect you this way. And in my experience over the last 30 years, it's a lot of that. Hey, you're supposed to submit to me and respect me the way this says. Oh, yeah? Well, you're supposed to love me the way Jesus loves the church. And what's happening there? That's not what these scriptures are for. Wives, this section on wives is for you. Ladies, it's for you. Not the other part. (laughs) Men, same thing. So if you find yourself in a difficult season or a difficult marriage, what is God calling you to do? And as you do that, you're fulfilling your purpose in life, which is to bring glory to him. And you can bring glory to him in the worst marriage. For those of you who have truly Christian marriages, the good news is that by God's grace, this is something you can actually do in your marriage. And it's what you promised to do in your vows. I bet a lot of you had vows like like me and my wife's to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to honor and respect until we are separated by death. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. In a marriage, you may not have money, you may not have security, you may not have status or influence, you may not even have health, but by Christ you can love and respect one another. You can pattern your, your marriage after his relationship to the church, and you can portray that to the world around So may all of us, whatever situation we're in, married, not married, good marriage, tough marriage, may we all take note of the profound mystery that a truly Christian marriage is, that it is patterned after and portrays the gospel, Christ's love for his responsive 